Monday, June 25th, WCBN and the Ann Arbor Summer Festival present a reading and listening party featuring the book Horses about Patti Smith's now legendary 1975 album of the same name. Patti's bandmate Ivan Kral will read and WCBN's own Sue Dice will DJ. This is a free event happening at 7 p.m. at Arbor Brewing Company. We're extremely lucky to have Ivan Kral in Ann Arbor and we hope to see you at Arbor Brewing Company at 7 p.m. on Monday, June 25th. Free! Hello, good evening, and welcome to Gray Matters, your weekly media analysis, political weirdness program. My name is Jim Dwyer, and thank you for listening today on this fine, super fine, super beautiful June afternoon here in Ann Arbor. Dick Whaley will uh, be away this week. He's uh, having family get-together. So we wish him well on that. Certainly lovely weather for it. And Mars is uh, wrapped up here with uh, Move Your Ass and his moving her ass on over to the aforementioned event of the 33 and a third book reading. So check that out. Uh, should be a very interesting time. Lots of stuff going on. But let's get to it here today on Gray Matters because we're going to continue with a little bit more uh, Watergate coverage. Of course, we noted the Marked with uh, celebratory glee, I guess, if you will, last week, the uh, 40th anniversary of the Watergate break-ins. And, of course, these were simply one event in an entire web of subterfuge, chicanery, skullduggery, and uh, highly illegal behavior uh, that the Committee to Re-elect the President <clears throat> uh, underwent in their Dirty Tricks campaign, etc., so the name of the hotel uh, in which the Democratic Party had their headquarters, uh, that headquarters were, was burglarized in June uh, twice uh, successfully, although those we'll hear in a moment uh, from some actual um, testimony from those hearings, uh, other attempts uh, had been made. <clears throat> and uh, this, of course, was in June 1972, uh, before the uh, conventions. Uh, summer goes through. Nixon is reelected resoundingly, uh, landslide victory in November of 72. And only later did the entire Watergate problem, which, of course, they began to cover up right away, begin to uh, get recognized for the uh, significant illegal action that it was. And so uh, my shock at the <clears throat> real dearth of Watergate-related coverage in the mainstream media, not too surprising, I suppose, but a little disappointing. And so uh, Dick and I have gone into some uh, little extra Nixon-related detours here. 
Otherwise, there's uh, certainly a lot of interesting things going on that we will return to current things. But uh, today's program devoted entirely to uh, some sustained Watergate coverage. <clears throat> and I'll be reading from a couple of uh, texts today as well as playing a Folkways recording of James McCord uh, and Bernard Barker, two of the uh, convicted Watergate burglars uh, testifying before the uh, House Committee here on uh, the Watergate matter. I'm also going to be reading from uh, some excerpts from Hunter Thompson's uh, The Great Shark Hunt, a collection of material he wrote, mostly for Rolling Stone magazine in the early and mid-70s, uh, as well as uh, from Stanley Cutler's Watergate, A Brief History with Documents. <clears throat> But uh, why don't we begin with the Cutler? This is a, a book that just uh, made its way into my hands, and so I'm familiar with most of this material, but uh, reading some of these memos and documents for the first time, as well as, of course, Cutler's uh, insightful uh, commentaries uh, throughout this book. He is one of the renowned scholarly uh, uh, historians working with uh, Watergate and has uh, compiled a number of the available transcripts of the Watergate tapes, or the, excuse me, the White House tapes, <clears throat> Oval Office tapes. <clears throat> Strangely, those recordings are not available as recordings. I'd love to be able to just listen to these things. You read them through, and uh, it's astonishing the revelations that uh, are sprawled all over the floor when you read the uh, Oval Office tapes, but uh, hearing them would be even more uh, thrilling, I suppose, and, and, and getting a little excited about it, just talking about it, I... Reminded of the passage where uh, Hunter Thompson notes that all Watergate groupies, I'm reading here now, quoting, all Watergate groupies seem to be anti-Nixon, both in the hearing room and bars around old Senate building, like fans cheering the home team. <clears throat> we'll return to that a little later. But <clears throat> from uh, Stanley Cutler's uh, Watergate, A Brief History with Documents, uh, this is a short passage, The Man on Top. Whatever explanations are offered for Watergate, the connection to Vietnam, the role of overzealous aides, the efforts of an opposition Congress, the personality of the president is central. One aide has described him as, quote, the man on the top. In comparison to several of his successors, Richard Nixon has been characterized as a, quote, hands-on president. He liked, uh, he liked so to regard himself, and, as eventually demonstrated, he actively uh, participated in the events that occurred immediately following Watergate break-in and those of the succeeding 14 months. The Nixon archives contain an extraordinary number of memoranda to various aides that reflect the president's thinking and desires. We see a president deeply conscious of public relations, preoccupied with enemies, real and imagined, mulling even from the time of his first inauguration over his prospects for re-election, fixating on trivial matters, constantly compelled to compare himself with his predecessors, John F. Kennedy and Lyndon B. Johnson. The Nixon papers contain surprisingly little of the president's interest or involvement in policy. Most clearly, his memoranda reflect his abiding interest in his own image and his dealings with opponents. Uh, that from Stanley Cutler, Watergate, A Brief History with Documents. We're going to hear now uh, a little snippet of <clears throat> James McCord testifying. I don't have the booklet that accompanies this series of fine Folkways records. It's a five LP 
set of uh, Watergate hearings recordings uh, featuring on the other records, Ehrlichman, Haldeman. Uh, sadly, I'm missing the Dean record, so I'm still seeking that out as a, a collector. But uh, this particular one features Nixon's uh, Watergate speech of April 30th, 1973, which we aired on Robot Pasta a couple of weeks back. Uh, but the other side of the record is the testimony of James McCord, the first of the White House burglars to to talk. And uh, he seems uh, contrite and looking for the best deal here, whereas if we have time and get to the uh, Bernard Barker uh, testimony, we'll see that he's really rather a strident uh, anti-communist sort of a, ah, don't call me a burglar, I'm a patriot. Uh, kind of a fellow. Uh, and of course, what's hard to recreate is the uh, intense theater of the situation once these hearings, of course, the burglary that we acknowledge the anniversary of, uh, these hearings, of course, are a year later, practically. Um, the in intense theatricality and drama of it, the, the questioners, the uh, sympathetic uh, Republicans on the committee, uh, charged with the responsibility of these hearings uh, and their uh, handling of the questioning. Uh, Senator Sam Irvin, of course, became a sort of a nat national celebrity for his folksy drawl and his somewhat uh, humorous approach to uh, question and answer. So uh, these are strange times uh, indeed, as the a subtitle of Hunter Thompson's book, Strange Tales from a Strange Time. Uh, and for those of you out there my age, this is the time of our childhood. So driving over, listening to uh, the Jack LaLanne on the previous program, and now yeah, about to play some uh, Watergate uh, hearings from 1973, this may take you back to your childhood. But we're going to hear James McCord here talk about E. Howard Hunt, his handler, and uh, what sort of a deal was struck. Then um, you say that from, the, from the, after the return of the bill of indictment in September down to the, day of, the last day of the trial that you are urged to plead guilty, remain silent by a number of people. Did uh, Mr. Hunt ever urge you to uh, plead guilty and remain silent? That is, E. e. Howard Hunt. Yes, sir. And uh, Mr. Howard Hunt. Uh, I'm trying to recall, sir, the exact words. Yes. The words most frequently used by Mr. Hunt with me was that executive clemency would be available to me. Yes. How many times did he urge you to plead guilty? That no, is sir, I'm, I'm, I mean to correct that statement. I don't recall Mr. Hunt using those words with me but did to he, plead guilty. Did, did, he, did he urge you to uh, not to remain silent? Did, did not, this, not in the exact words, no, sir. But what words did you use? And there's your member. He used words to the effect that he used words stating that executive clemency is going to be made available to us. And he spoke in terms as though it all, already had been committed. I say already, already as of the time that he first mentioned it to me. You testified this morning about a meeting in Mr. Mitchell's office. 
Was there more than one meeting with the Attorney General or only one? I understood there were more than there was more than one You're talking meeting. about in which you personally were involved. I did not attend, but I was told that by Mr. Liddy that there was more than one meeting that took place. I had heard him mention two specifically. Did you yourself ever attend a meeting in Mr. Mitchell's office no, about sir. any matter? I attended meetings, yes, in his office at the committee to re-elect the president. When he subsequently came over, I visited his offices at the attorney general's office at the Department of Justice in December on another matter, but not to discuss these particular operations. How many different visits or conversations have you ever had with Mr. Mitchell? Numerous, sir. Dozen, 15, 20, more? I would guess 15. Does he know you by your name yes, individually sir. and you know him? Yes, sir. You called him Mr. Attorney General, I presume? Yes, sir. What did he call you? Before June 17. <laughs> Before and after, please. I haven't seen him since June 17. He called me Jim, I believe. He called you Jim. So you're on a first name basis with Did you ever make any effort to bug uh, Senator Muskies or Senator McGovern's headquarters? Never, Senator Muskies, Senator McGovern's. There was a visit to the office uh, by me, I, I believe, on two, on three occasions in total one of which I had some electronic equipment with me but was never installed because there were other people working there at the time. In other words, you could never found out any time that the office was empty. That's correct. Oh dear, how inconvenient. Well, a break there from James McCord. Very short excerpts there. And if time permits, we'll hear a few more from Bernard Barker, perhaps. But I do want to read a few passages from... Uh, Hunter Thompson's article, Fear and Loathing at the Watergate, Mr. Nixon has cashed his check, which originally appeared in uh, September 27th, 1973, issue of Rolling Stone magazine, and is read to you now in the collection entitled The Great Shark Hunt. Uh, he has some notes here. I'm just going to jump in and do highlights uh, that he's penciled in watching this on television from his home base in Colorado. And he notes uh, with humor, Ehrlichman takes the oath with Heil Hitler salute. No laughter from spectators. Uh, Ehrlichman's face, arrogance. Keep the effer on TV 10 hours a day, 10 straight days. Ehrlichman has insane gall to challenge Irvin on constitutional issues. Nixon's right to authorize Ellsberg burglary. Well, uh, Thompson writes a little bit about seeing this on television, finding it so exciting and compelling that he wanted to be in D.C. in the hearing rooms themselves, <clears throat> which he then proceeded to do, only to discover, uh, alas, as he had been warned, that this would uh, pan out to be a disappointment. Uh, Krauss had warned me by phone about the hazards of coming east. I know you won't believe this, he said, so you might as well just get on a plane and find out for yourself. But the weird truth is that Washington is the only place in the country where the Watergate story seems dull. I can sit up here in Boston and get totally locked into it on the tube, but when I go down there to that goddamn hearing room, I get so bored and depressed, I can't think. 
Thompson, of course, uh, realizes this is true himself, returns home, because, of course, you can drink uh, in front of the television and uh, make it a lot more entertaining. <clears throat> but then he goes on to uh, anticipate what might come next in the proceedings. And this is where we get into some uh, startling uh, revelations and uh, insights that I think are quite uh, far-sighted. <clears throat> and in fact, we're still dealing with this uh, a, a version of this particular mess. So this is from uh, page 321 of the Warner Books edition of The Great Shark Hunt, Hunter S. Thompson. The smart money says the Watergate hearings as such are effectively over, not only because Nixon is preparing to mount a popular crusade against them, but because every elected politician in Washington is afraid of what the Irvin Committee has already scheduled for the third phase of the hearings. Phase two, as originally planned, would focus on dirty tricks, a colorful, shocking, and essentially minor area of inquiry, but one with plenty of action and a guaranteed audience appeal. A long and serious look at the dirty tricks aspect of national campaigning would be a death blow to the daily soap opera syndrome that apparently grips most of the nation's housewives, uh, who were upset, I insert parenthetically, <clears throat> at the interruption of their regular programs for these uh, daily televised Watergate hearings. Returning to Thompson, uh, the cast of characters and the twisted tales they would tell would shame every soap opera scriptwriter in America. Phase three, campaign financing, is the one both the White House and the Senate would prefer to avoid. And given this mutual distaste for exposing the public to the realities of campaign financing, this is the phase of the Watergate hearings most likely to be cut from the schedule. Jesus Christ, said one Irvin committee investigator, will have fortunes 500 in that chair, and every one of those bastards will take at least one congressman or senator down with them. At the end of phase one, the facts and realities of the Watergate affair itself, <clears throat> the seven senators on the Irvin committee took an informal vote amongst themselves before adjourning to a birthday party for Senator Herman Talmadge, and the tally was 4-3 against resuming the hearings in their current format. Talmadge cast the deciding vote, joining the three Republicans, Gurney, Baker, and Weicker, in voting to wrap the hearings up as soon as possible. Their reasons were the same ones Nixon gave in his long-awaited TV speech on August 15th, when he said the time had come to end this daily bummer and get back to the business of the people. Well, he talks about why uh, Nixon didn't use the phrase the business of America is business, uh, because he can't blame the economic malaise on a predecessor. Uh, Nixon can't claim, because he is now in his fifth year as president, uh, when he goes on TV to explain himself, he is facing an audience of 50 to 60 million uh, who can't afford steaks or even hamburger in the supermarkets, and who can't buy gasoline for their cars, who are paying 15 and 20% interest rates for bank loans, and who are being told now that there may not be enough fuel oil to heat their homes through the coming winter. This is not the ideal audience for a second-term president, fresh from a landslide victory, to confront with 29 minutes of lame gibberish about mean nitpickers in Congress, the good old American way, and let's get on with business. Indeed, that's the first thing Richard Nixon and I have ever agreed on politically. And what we are dealing with now is no longer hard ideology, but a matter of simple competence. We are What we are looking at on all our TV sets is a man who finally, after 24 years of frenzied effort, became the president of the United States with a personal salary of $200,000 a year and an unlimited expense account, including a fleet of private helicopters, jetliners, armored cars, personal mansions, and estates on both coasts, and control over a budget beyond the wildest dreams of King Midas, 
and all the dumb bastard can show us after five years of total freedom to do anything he wants with all this power is a shattered national economy. Disastrous defeat in a war he could have ended four years ago on far better terms than he finally came around to, and a hand-picked personal staff put together through five years of screening whose collective criminal record will blow the minds of high school American history students for the next hundred years. Nixon's hand-picked vice president is about to be indicted for extortion and bribery. His former campaign manager and his former secretary of commerce and personal fundraiser have already been indicted for perjury. Two of his ranking campaign managers have already pleaded guilty to obstruction of justice. The White House counsel is headed for prison on more uh, felony counts than I have room to list here and before the trials are finished. We get a quote from the hearings themselves. Senator Talmadge questioning. Now, if the president could authorize a covert break-in and you do not know exactly where that power would be limited... You do not think it could include murder, do you? Ehrlichman's response, I do not know where that line is, sir. With the first phase of the Watergate hearings more or less ended, one of the few things now unmistakably clear, as it were, is that nobody in Nixon's White House was willing to draw the line anywhere short of re-electing the president in 1972. Even John Mitchell whose reputation as a super shrewd lawyer ran afoul of the Peter Principle just as soon as he became Nixon's first attorney general, lost his temper in an exchange with Senator Talmadge at the Watergate hearings and said, with the whole world watching, that he considered the re-election of Richard Nixon in 1972 so important that it outweighed all other considerations. All other considerations. Well, I skip ahead now in Hunter Thompson's Fear and Loathing at the Watergate. He's going to insert a lengthy quote uh, from George McGovern, a quote uh, that was printed in the Washington Post, uh, I believe a short piece that uh, McGovern wrote at that time, dated August 12, 1973. So this is well after the fact, uh, these beans having been spilled and McGovern's uh, landslide loss. Uh, now seen in a different light. And Thompson writes, The re-election of Mr. Nixon, followed so quickly by the Watergate revelations, has compelled the country to re-examine the reality of our electoral process. And here we get the McGovern quote. The unraveling of the whole White House tangle of involvement has come about largely by a series of fortuitous events, many of them unlikely in a different political context. Without these events, the cover-up might have continued indefinitely, even if a Democratic administration vigorously pursued the truth. In the wake of Watergate may come more honest and thorough campaign reform than in the aftermath of a successful presidential campaign, which stood for such reform. I suspect that after viewing the abuses of the past, voters in the future will insist on full and open debate between the candidates and on frequent, no-holds-barred press conferences for all candidates and especially the president. And I suspect the Congress will respond to the fact that Watergate happened with legislation to assume that Watergate never happens again. To assure that Watergate never happens again. Today, the prospects for further restrictions on private campaign financing, full disclosure of the personal finances of the candidates, and public finance of all federal campaigns seems to me better than ever, and even better than if a new Democratic administration had urged such steps in early 1973. We did urge them in 1972, but it took the Nixon Nixon landslide and the Watergate expose to make the point. I believe there were great gains that came from the pain of defeat in 1972. 
we proved a campaign could be honestly financed. We reaffirmed that a campaign could be open in its conduct and decent in its motivation. We made the Democratic Party a place for people as well as politicians. And perhaps in losing, we gained the greatest victory of all, that Americans now perceive far better than a new president could have persuaded them what is precious about our principles and what we must do to preserve them. The nation now sees itself through the prism of Watergate and the Nixon landslide. At last, perhaps, we see through a glass clearly. Because of all this, it is possible that by 1976, the 200th anniversary of America's birth, there will be a true rebirth of patriotism, that we will not only know our ideals but live them, that democracy may once again become a conviction we keep and not just a description we apply to ourselves. And if the McGovern campaign advanced that hope, even in defeat, then, as I said on election night last November, every minute and every hour and every bone-crushing effort was worth the entire sacrifice. Wow, that's pretty prescient stuff, especially with regards to the private campaign financing, full disclosure of personal finances and so forth. Here we are living in a post uh, Citizens United American political landscape. Thompson continues, though, following up on McGovern's quote. Jesus. Sunday morning in Woody Creek, and here's McGovern on the mini-tube besides my type, beside my typewriter, looking and talking almost exactly like he was in those speedy weeks between the Wisconsin and Ohio primaries, when his star was rising so fast he could barely hang on to it. The sense of deja vu is almost frightening. Here is McGovern speaking sharply against the system once again. His response to uh, questions from CBS's Connie Chung and Marty Nolan from the Boston Globe, two of the most ever-present reporters on the 72 campaign trail. And McGovern, brought back from the dead by a political miracle of sorts, is hitting the first gong of doom for the man who made him a landslide loser nine months ago. Quote, when that judicial process is completed and the Supreme Court rules that the president must turn over the tapes, and he refuses to do so, I think the Congress will have no recourse but to seriously consider impeachment. Close quote. Kazart, the fat is approaching the fire, very slowly and in very cautious hands. But there is no ignoring the general drift of things. Sometime between now and the end of 73, Richard Nixon may have to bite that bullet he's talked about for so long. Seven is a lucky number for gamblers, but not for fixers. And Nixon's seventh crisis is beginning to put his first six in very deep shade. Even the most conservative betting in Washington these days has Nixon either resigning or being impeached by the autumn of 74. If not for reasons directly connected to the Watergate scandal, then because of his inability to explain how he paid for his beach mansion at San Clemente, or why Vice President Agnew, along with most of Nixon's original White House command staff, is under indictment for felonies ranging from extortion and perjury to burglary and obstruction of justice. Another good bet in Washington, running at odds between 2 and 3 to 1 these days, is that Nixon will crack, both physically and mentally, under all this pressure, and develop a serious psychosomatic illness of some kind, maybe another bad case of pneumonia. This is not so wild a vision as it might sound, not even in the context of my own known taste for fantasy and savage bias in politics. Richard Nixon, a career politician who has rarely failed to crack under genuine pressure, is under more pressure now than most of us will ever understand. His whole life is turning to crap, just as he reaches the pinnacle. And every once in a while, caving into a weakness that blooms in the cool, thinking hours around dawn, I have to admit that I feel a touch of irrational sympathy for the bastard. Not as a president. 
a broken little bully who would sacrifice us all to save himself, if he still had the choice. But the same kind of sympathy I might feel momentarily for a vicious cheap-shot linebacker whose long career comes to a sudden end one Sunday afternoon when some rookie flanker shatters both his knees with a savage crack-black attack. Crack-back-block. Cheap-shot artists don't last very long in pro football. To cripple another person intentionally is to violate the same kind of code as the legendary honor among thieves. More linebackers than thieves believe this. But when it comes to politics, to a 28-year career of cheap shots, lies, and thievery, there is no man in America who should understand what is happening to him now better than Richard Milhouse Nixon. He is a living monument to the old army rule that says, the only real crime is getting caught. This is not the first time Richard Nixon has been caught. After his failed campaign for the governorship of California in 1972, he was formally convicted. Along with H.R. Haldeman and Maurice Stans, Murray Chotner, Herb Klein, and Herb Kalmbach for almost exactly the same kind of crudely illegal campaign tactics that he stands accused of today. But this time, the language of the sergeants who keep military tradition alive, he got very he got caught every which way and his ass went into the blades. Not many people have ever written in the English language better than a Pollock with a twisted sense of humor who called himself Joseph Conrad. And if he were with us today, I think he'd be getting a fine boot out of this Watergate story. Mr. Kurtz, in Conrad's Heart of Darkness, did his thing. Mr. Nixon also did his thing. And now, just as surely as Kurtz, Mr. Nixon, he did. Hunter S. Thompson from The Great Shark Hunt and a piece called Fear and Loathing at the Watergate. You are listening to Gray Matters on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. And this is Jim DeWire. Struggling to continue the seamless programming here uh, that is yours to behold. Yazoo City Calling, of course, follows this program. But uh, I feel to end on a light note, let's go cheer ourselves up, as it were, refresh our sense of uh, vitality by turning to what was America's number one hit song the week of the Watergate burglar, all the way back there 40 years ago in June of 1972. For three weeks in the top number one position, Sammy Davis Jr. and Candyman. Here he is singing it live, the great showman himself, Candyman, Sammy Davis Jr. Stay tuned for Yazoo City Calling, coming up shortly. This gentleman Who can take a sunrise Sprinkle it with dew Thank you Cover it with chocolate or a miracle Or two The candy man The candy man 